Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be watching Season 7, Episode 20, The Girl with the Dungeons and Dragons Tattoo, written by Robbie Thompson and directed by Johnny McCarthy. This is the first episode of Supernatural. He is credited as the director, but he was the first assistant director on half of the episodes of Supernatural. All the episodes that have an even number were first assistant directed by Johnny Mac. He alternated with Kevin Parks, who did the odd numbered episodes. And R.I.P. Johnny Mac, who passed away last August. But he was deeply in love with this show, and it shows in how he directs it. Welcome to Supernatural, Charlie Bradbury. The little sister we never wanted, or something like that. But sometimes I wonder if she wasn't pushed into Sam and Dean's lives because they needed a competent friend, but also to nudge Dean a little further out of the closet. Because, who boy, she pulled out sides of Dean we'd never seen this same way before. I mean, the whole, I can't flirt with this guy because he's not a woman and I'm gay situation, where Dean stepped right up and smoothly handled the flirting with the dude on her behalf, because fill in the blank with your pet theory about Dean's sexual orientation here. <laughs> and I kind of zipped through this entire episode, so I know beloved episodes for some reason tend to be short, but um, yeah, I just love this one. So maybe I'll end up rambling beyond where my notes took me, but yeah, I just think this episode's been talked into the ground about the themes and what it reveals about Dean as a character. So we'll just love on it for a little while here. If nothing else, Charlie brings a welcome bit of queer geeky whimsy into their lives, and I love her for that. She is really the first representation of what most of us think of as fandom in the show that wasn't critical or condescending toward fandom. She wasn't the obsessed Becky fan. She wasn't the weird nerds from Becky's fan convention. She was just a cool lady living her life and finding joy in fictional worlds. She wasn't obsessed with the supernatural books or thought Sam and Dean were some sort of like godlike heroes like Becky did. I mean, Charlie didn't even know the supernatural books existed until after this, so... She was just happily living her life, showing what a healthy relationship to fandom can look like. And I appreciate that, too. She also brings a boatload of Dean parallels and identity themes. You know, she wasn't always Charlie Bradbury, either. She's a mystery. So let's also take a moment to point and laugh at all the PR surrounding her joining the cast, with speculation that Charlie was being set up as a love interest for Dean, because I love how often the media got stuff like this just so horribly and laughably wrong. It always stirred up some kind of panic that someone was being introduced to the cast as a love interest for somebody, and then it almost never turned out to be that, you know? So, anyway. We're officially back into the myth arc now, full frontal on Dick, and all up inside his enterprises. Oh, 
and those archaeological digs that got a random mention in the previous episode will finally pay dividends. And because of who I am as a person, I need to plug my upcoming Pinefest fic, which riffs liberally on the themes and plots of this episode, from Dick being a shady creep after some sort of archaeological dig, Charlie being a badass hacker, and Frank being a paranoid bastard. It doesn't post until April, but if you enjoy this episode and would like a non-monster human AU take on it, hopefully you will also enjoy my fic. And now, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. Let's take this opportunity to jump directly into the then segment. We open with a reminder of Frank Devereaux, our favorite paranoid surveillance expert, and how he was exposed to the Leviathans and had to flee into hiding, and from all available evidence was eventually killed by the Leviathans. We then journey back to Bobby's death, how he ran from his Reaper and almost got ghost-killed in last week's episode, after which Sam and Dean were finally able to see him again. He tells Dean that they still have work to do, but Dean is worried for him, knowing what usually happens to ghosts. And that brings us to now. Sam and Dean are holed up in a dilapidated cabin plastered with research on Dick Roman. They're focused on figuring out Dick's random obsession with archaeological digs and finding nothing. Dean uncaps his flask, the lights start flickering, and Sam and Dean draw their guns, but it's just Bobby. He's still struggling to maintain focus enough to appear to them, so he uses his potentially limited time to info-dump at them to catch everybody up. Dean wonders if opening his flask is what released Bobby, and Bobby's like, yeah, I don't think so, but I got no clue. But the numbers that Bobby died to give them he finally tells them what else he saw in Dick's plans for that property. He's building a slaughterhouse for humans. We learn these facts intercut over shots of Biggersons, the weird TDK slammer goo that turned Dean into an idiot, and the fact that humanity will not even notice that they're being turned into livestock because they will all be made completely complacent by the food. And it's not just Biggersons now. Dean's like, well, we haven't eaten there since then. You know, we know it's bad shit. Bobby's like, oh, no, no, no. They've bought thousands of other places, too. And they're all just churning out goo to turn people into morons. Bobby goes on to detail the steps of the Leviathan's big plan, from curing humanity of all disease to create a healthy food source for themselves. They're not hunting random people to eat anymore. They want to turn humanity into their perfect assembly line buffet. And we finally understand what would make Bobby desperate enough to stick around at great personal risk to himself. What was worth him skipping out on heaven for? You know, this is it. He's got to save the world and he's the only one who had that information. This is urgent. And Sam and Dean haven't even been able to really piece it all together on their own, despite having picked up several tidbits of it over the last 10 episodes or so. But if the Leviathan get their way, humanity as we know it would be gone forever. We cut to Charlie hacking Frank's drive, 
when Sam and Dean get an email alert from Frank. The email says that if they're reading this, he's dead, or worse, but he set up an automatic warning to go out to them if someone tried to hack into his hard drive. He also warns them that all of their new aliases, all of their hiding locations, and even where they stored their car is on that drive, so they're in danger if someone actually cracks it. The tracking device he put in the drive leads them directly to Richard Roman Enterprises, so they're probably screwed. And then we cut to the title card. Post-title card, we flash back to Charlie pulling up to Richard Roman Enterprises on her little yellow scooter in a Princess Leia t-shirt and heading into work there while blasting walking on sunshine through her headphones. She might work in the Death Star, but she's very much her own person. Her cubicle is just filled with random fandom novelties, Funko Pops and figurines. And the first thing she does is hack into a conservative super PAC to funnel $10,000 from them to an animal charity instead. She banters about her social life with the guy in the next cubicle, who's also worried about her job security if she keeps using company computers to break the law like that. But Charlie is cocky. She believes in her ability to cover her tracks. Just then, her boss Pete calls her into his office where Dick Roman is waiting to speak to her, and all of a sudden she's feeling a little less cocky about her hacking skills. Dick sounds like he's talking in metaphors. He feels he's been in charge of things since before the dawn of man. Yeah, the Leviathans have been around that long. And the world is his dinner plate. Well, yeah, he's going to try and turn humanity into his food source. But based on the cold open scene, we all know he is speaking the literal truth. Charlie thinks she's about to be fired for hacking, but Dick is impressed with her, calls it adorable, and Charlie's really confused. Dick tells her she's irreplaceable and he can't copy her. And when she's like, what? He's like, take the compliment. Dick brings out Frank's hard drive, tells her its owner intended to bring down the whole company, but he wants Charlie to hack the drive. Charlie and Pete are both speechless about this. He also tells her she's got three days to do it or she's fired. So, you know, really putting her skills to the test. Back at her desk, Charlie is not at all pleased with her situation. She doesn't like being perceived this much, and I cannot blame her. So she starts hacking. Back at their cabin, Sam and Dean prepare to head to Chicago, where the Death Star is, and Charlie is, while Bobby warns them that they can't just break in to steal the drive. He suggests they mail the flask into the building so he can ghost grab the drive. Sam and Dean worry that if Bobby ran into Dick in there, he would go vengeful, and it's clear they're both concerned about it, while Bobby is incensed that they don't have more faith in him. And from Sam and Dean's point of view, this is not a matter of faith. They would 100% trust real living Bobby, but ghosts inevitably do go vengeful, especially when confronted by the thing that caused them to stick around as ghosts in the first place, you know? The next day, Charlie is still at her desk. She fell asleep. 
still trying to crack Frank's drive. And then it finally happens. So it takes her like less than a full day to do it. Still pretty amazing. Frank had folders on the March of Dimes because Frank was weirdly obsessed with them. Kind of makes me wonder about the March of Dimes. Clones, monsters, and known facts, among others, including Richard Roman Enterprises. Charlie debates just handing it all over to Dick on the spot, but her curiosity wins and she looks through the file herself first and immediately is confronted with an overwhelming cascade of bizarre information that she probably would rather never have known about. Starting with the Leviathan, what they are, what they're doing, all narrated by Frank, montage style. When Charlie's made it through all of that, not sure what to really make of any of it, other than to think that Frank was probably a lunatic, she can't figure out why Dick would care about this, She goes looking for her boss to tell him that she's succeeded. She eventually finds him having a cigarette in the parking garage and being confronted by Dick Roman and another associate. Dick asks about the drive, and Pete assures him that he's working on it. Dick gives a little speech about him being replaceable, and then his companion morphs into Pete opens his leviathan mouth, and gobbles Pete up. And Charlie was on the spot to witness all of that. Suddenly, Frank doesn't look quite so insane. She flees, leaves the building, goes home, and is packing a bag when, quote, Pete calls to ask where she went. She makes an excuse, female troubles, but she's also shaken, thinking that someone is in her apartment. A Darth Vader bobblehead across the room is bobbling. She tries to flee, but Dean stops her, shutting her door. She is terrified and thinks he must be a shapeshifter. She can't remember the word Leviathan in her panic. When Sam tells her they're not shapeshifters, she grabs a decorative sword and whacks him with it. But the sword just breaks. Dean proves they're not Leviathans by pouring borax on him and Sam, and then make her do the same. And it's enough to let her know that she is not alone in this, that this insane reality that she's just stumbled into, it's not just her. Which makes the next cut all the more jarring. We see what looks like a legitimate and very patriotic American ad for a company called Sucrocorp supposedly using technology to create the best foods. But, of course, it's just another company owned by Dick, and all part of the Leviathan's big plan to subjugate humanity. And I'm wondering how many people, when this first aired, fast-forwarded through that commercial, thinking that it was like an actual ad, you know, or just got up and left the room. Like, How many people may have missed Sam's Herpexia ad from Changing Channels, you know? Because it looks like an ad at first, and then you realize, oh shit, no, it's part of the show. But yeah, this one straight up just looks like an ad. When we return to Charlie's, Sam asks about how she cracked the drive. Because, you know, Frank was a genius. He wouldn't have made his drive easily crackable. If she hacked it, she's pretty good. Sam asks if there's anything that she can't hack, and she says, not yet. 
and it's clear they're impressed by her skills. And they ask if she can hack into Dick's email because they're still trying to figure out how all those archaeology digs fit into everything else. Charlie realizes that Dick is one of the monsters and Sam and Dean clarify, no, he's their leader. And then they tell her what his endgame is. Planet-wide value meal, where the meat, and Charlie is shaken, but she's determined to help. She discovers that Dick's email is on a private server located in his office and only hackable with his phone or while sitting at his desk. Of course, she doesn't want to be the one to do it and very quickly realizes that Dick's not going to let her live if he finds out that she saw everything on that drive anyway. She just wants to erase it, pretend none of this ever happened, and Dean breaks the sad news to her that her old life is over now, and she's on Dick's radar, and until he's gone, she's not going to be safe. Sam tries to assure her that she doesn't have to do any of this. She didn't volunteer for it, but then she officially volunteers. If she has to go back to work to erase Frank's drive, she can break into Dick's office too, because she couldn't live with herself if she did nothing while the Leviathan ate everyone she knows, you know? She has a soul, and she's a decent human being. Dean is quietly impressed by her, and they all sit down to plan out their mission while Bobby's ghost quietly looks on, grumbling about the whole thing. In a surveillance van later that night, Sam and Dean watch on the cameras as Charlie goes into the building. She set it up so that she'll have a 15-minute surveillance loop, during which she'll be able to hack Dick's computer before getting caught on camera again. Because if it takes her longer than that to hack Dick's computer... She deserved to be eaten. Dean appreciates her attitude about that and says that he likes Charlie. But as Charlie paces by the entry to the building, Dean notices Bobby's flask poking out of her bag. Bobby wasn't going to sit on the sidelines, and Dean's pissed about it. Because they can't call off the mission, this is the only shot they're going to get at it. And there's really nothing they can do now to save Bobby from having to go into the building. Charlie is quietly singing Walking on Sunshine to psych herself up to go inside. And then Dean breaks in over her earpiece and asks if she's singing. And she's like, yeah, calms me down. And that's a total flashback to Dean on the airplane in season one, episode four, when he's humming Metallica under his breath because it calms him down, you know? So Charlie is showing a lot of similarities to Dean. How many more parallels can they draw between them? Over the earbud, though, Dean tells Charlie to check her bag, and she thanks him as she takes a swig of the whiskey. You know, steady her nerves. He just asks her not to lose the flask, because it's a good luck charm and a family heirloom. And that's the best Dean can do, other than hope Bobby doesn't go vengeful and wreck the whole mission. And it kind of pays off a little bit later because Bobby kind of stands guard over Charlie. And even if she doesn't know it, I kind of feel better for her knowing that Bobby's got her back. 
Charlie panics at the last minute, though, before walking through those doors, and Sam has to pep talk her into going inside. He asks her who her favorite Harry Potter character is, Hermione. And while Dean's incredulous that Sam even knows what to say about Hermione's courage, it actually works on Charlie, who pulls up her courage and says she's going to kick it in the ass. And then the whole audience had a soft moment on behalf of Kim Manners, because that was his directorial catchphrase, kick it in the ass. It's after hours. The building is dark and quiet compared to earlier, and the security guard inside eyeballs Charlie as she waits for the elevator. It's a very different ride compared to her dancing and singing from before. At her desk, she doctors up her security badge so it will let her into Dick's office, and when she gets back on the elevator to go up, we see Bobby standing there with her. Charlie doesn't see him, though. She's about to confidently walk into Dick's office when she spots a security guard patrolling the hall and panics. She can't wait him out, as Dean suggests, because the security guard just sits down and opens up a book. And it's now Dean's turn to figure out how to get her past this guard. And it's a fascinating look inside Dean's mind and the instant calculations that go into his social persona construct engine. You know, like when he's working a case and he just starts talking extemporaneously and just makes shit up on the spot, whole identities even, and he does so in such a casual and flirty way. You can tell he's long practiced at it. And now he gets to share that gift with Charlie. Dean asks a few questions that completely baffle Charlie, but they break her out of her panic. Does she know the guard? How does he look at her when he sees her? And then Dean confidently tells her to flirt her way past the guard, because Dean can tell that the guard is interested in her, or at least mildly attracted to her. And we've already seen how confident Charlie is in social situations, so to Dean, that would seem like the natural thing to suggest. From hooking up with someone at a reproductive rights benefit the night before, and being proud of that when talking with her co-worker the next day, and just, in general, how she's handled every social interaction we've seen her have so far. But now she's completely at a loss, because she's a lesbian and feels no attraction to the security guard. Dean hits a wall with the advice. There's nothing else he can tell her to change this scenario, and he offers to walk her through it. It's interesting that Dean gives Sam an awkward look and then gets up from his seat and walks to the other side of the van. I mean, he's still in this little tiny security van, but he puts as much distance between himself and Sam as he can before starting in on this. And I think there's probably been a million analyses written about the flirting scene, Charlie's awkwardness and Dean's smooth talking to flirt with a man and that one split screen that puts Dean right up in the security guard's face and Charlie off on the sidelines. I've linked a bunch of those posts in the post for this podcast, and rather than just rehash everything that's already been said, I will simply point out that this is all incredibly queer. If you can't look at this entire scene and not see it as Dean flirting with a man, I don't know what to tell you. Charlie is 
adorably awkward as fuck. Dean is smooth as velvet, and Sam gives Dean a look like, what the fuck, dude? So even visually, we are again reminded that even Sam is shocked at how easily Dean flirts with a man. And then Sam laughs at one point, and Dean tells him to stop laughing. But Charlie is running so hard on autopilot, just repeating everything that Dean is saying to her, that she repeats that to the guy too. And then she panics. And Dean helps her recover. She ends up scoring a date with the dude, and then asks if she can use the bathroom, because the one downstairs is a mess or something. When the guy is all flustered and kind of taken off guard, haha, by the situation. Instead of going into the ladies' room, she takes a different turn and heads directly into Dick's office. Meanwhile, back in the van, Sam and Dean are entirely blind to what's going on because the security cameras are on a loop. They can't give Charlie a heads up if someone's coming because they can't tell her. It only takes her a second to crack Dick's server, luckily, and she starts downloading all of the emails to a thumb drive, but the security guard's growing suspicious at what's taking her so long. He goes over and knocks on the women's bathroom door, all while Ghost Bobby is kind of keeping an eye out in the hallway. He slams and then locks the door to Dick's office, which alerts Charlie that something is definitely wrong here. She knows she's probably about to be found out. The computer data is still downloading when the guard gets the door unlocked, and Charlie steps out of Dick's private washroom, acting all innocent. Like, oh, right, I thought you meant this door. He's like, no, I said the other door. But she keeps flirting so hard, so she has an excuse to pick up a pen off Dick's desk to write her phone number on the guard's hand. When she picks up the pen, she covertly checks on the download progress, and when she turns to put the pen back, she also snags the thumb drive and then makes her exit, leaving the guard slightly baffled but not suspicious. Back in the van, Sam's building a borax weapon while Dean complains about having to sit in the van while the innocent girl risks her life for them. He really cares about Charlie now, but Sam points out that the Leviathans would have recognized either of them instantly. They really couldn't have done this themselves. They may hate it, but they didn't really have much of a choice. Back at her desk, Charlie uploads the files about the archaeological digs to them, but her boss, Pete the Monster, comes in and talks to her. Dean orders Charlie to leave the building immediately but she can't until she's finished her mission. She's got to finish erasing Frank's drive. Meanwhile, Sam and Dean discover that the archaeological digging stopped a few days ago, probably because Dick found whatever it was he was looking for, which is a concern, since they have no idea what that even could be. Whatever it is, it's arriving on a private plane provided by Donald Trump, because of course it is but they have only 42 minutes to get to the airport to intercept it. Dean says he needs her to do one more thing for them, and then to get the hell out of there. And then we see Dick in the lobby in a tux, 
getting the report that his package is about to arrive, and he is delighted by that. As Charlie prepares to leave, Dick shows up in her office. Meanwhile, at the airport, the courier Leviathan arrives and picks up a suitcase. And then we see Sam and Dean standing out in the parking lot by their junker car with the trunk open. When the courier gets back to Dick's office, presumably after leaving Charlie's office, he's excited about finally having what he'd set out to dig for. Only when he opens the briefcase, inside he finds a borax bomb that blows up in his face. We flash back to two hours earlier, when we finally learn what one other thing Dean had Charlie do for him. She arranged for the courier to show up 30 minutes late, giving Sam and Dean a chance to get to the airport, swap out the suitcase for the bomb right under the Leviathan courier's nose, and escape before being detected. We then flash back to Charlie's office when Dick confronted her about Frank's drive. He wanted a full report. Back at the airport, we see what Sam and Dean managed to steal from Dick. When they open the suitcase, it's a weird hunk of red clay, but figuring out what it is will have to wait, because they have to get back to the Death Star to make sure that Charlie gets out safe. They try to call her, but she can't answer her phone with Dick standing right over her shoulder. She lies through her teeth about what she found on Frank's drive. Charlie did a very good job of removing any references to the Winchesters or monsters, but as she demonstrates this to Dick by searching for Sam and Dean Winchester and coming up with nothing, Ghost Bobby is standing in the background, invisibly doing everything he can do to restrain himself but the object of his vengeance is literally standing right there, and it is an incredible struggle for him. Charlie sends the data to Dick, even though there's nothing that could incriminate the Winchesters left on it, and he asks her to walk him through how she cracked that drive, how she managed to break the unbreakable, and she just says that nothing is unbreakable and Dick goes on a little rant about how frustrating it is that he can't just feed her knowledge into someone else and have that person be her. It's kind of interesting that he almost gets it here, though. And I think this is an issue for so many of the non-human beings on this show, really. They just don't get humanity. That whole free will thing, you know? Even when they can see it, like Dick is seeing in Charlie here, They don't really understand it. And that goes for angels and especially Chuck himself, you know? Why can't humanity just bend to his will? It frustrates the crap out of them. And I love that for people in general. (laughs) We really are better than the supernatural beings on this show. Dick gets the call about his package being delivered and tells Charlie to wait there for him. Of course, as soon as he steps away, she runs for it. And then we see Dick get hit with the borax bomb and calls security to lock the building down. By the time she gets to the front door, it's too late for Charlie to get out. Everything's already locked up. Bobby uses his ghost power to fracture the glass. 
but that just scares Charlie. She's like, oh my God, why'd the glass just shatter for no reason? And she's too petrified to like make a run for it or attempt to crash through the glass and escape before Pete and Dick find her there. But Ghost Bobby is big mad now, fully vengeful, and he only has eyes for Dick Roman. He just grabs Pete and flings him aside like he weighs nothing. Unfortunately, he throws Pete directly into Charlie, and it breaks her arm. But Bobby taps into that pure rage that he learned about in last week's episode as he charges toward Dick. Sam and Dean then come crashing through the cracked glass to Charlie's rescue. They fling Borax on Pete, and Dick puts it all together that she'd been working with Sam and Dean all along. Bobby goes invisible and still flings Dick around a bunch, which gives Sam enough time to scoop up Charlie and the Winchesters to make a run for it. Back in the car, Charlie is traumatized. She asks why they didn't kill Dick, and Sam admits it's because they can't yet, but they're working on it. Charlie mutters that the really evil ones always need a special sword, and then she passes out. Up in Dick's office, he is incandescent with rage, and then eats the courier leviathan who failed his mission. I mean, talk about shooting the messenger, right? The next day, after Charlie's broken arm is seen to, Sam and Dean take her to a bus station. She left the flask on the back seat of their car and disparages it as a good luck charm. It was the worst luck, good luck charm she's ever used. She tells them to never contact her again, and Dean asks if she's going to be okay. Charlie just shrugs and admits it's not the first time she's disappeared, and that Charlie Bradbury isn't even her real name. This girl has hidden depths, and we love to see it. Dean says that she's like the little sister that he never wanted, but he likes and respects her, and she is so good for him as a friend, even if he won't see her again for over a year. As soon as Charlie gets on her bus, Sam holds Dean back from returning to their car and expresses his concerns about Bobby. Dean attempts to brush it off at first to defend Bobby because Dean himself would have punched Dick in the face if he'd had a shot. And even with Charlie's broken arm, Dean says that Bobby didn't mean to do it. And Sam says, yeah, that's kind of the whole point. Bobby's not in control of himself when it comes to Dick. He might still be Bobby for now, but if he goes full on vengeful, he really won't be Bobby anymore. And this is seriously weighing on Dean, too. You can just see it, the way his whole demeanor changes. He's really feeling hurt by this. He doesn't want to watch Bobby go full vengeful, you know? But they need to figure out what it is that they stole from Dick first. And then they'll figure out what to do about Bobby. And that is where the episode ends. So despite the fact that they made a ton of progress through the myth arc here, There's still so much uncertainty swirling about like a bunch of borax in a dirty mop bucket. At least from here on out, we get a fairly steady progression of logical mysteries to solve and not just vague guilt, depression, and concern that they've muddled through all season to this point. 
and next week, on the heels of one amazing character introduction to the show, we get yet another in the reluctant prophet Kevin Tran, and the simultaneous unboxing of both the Leviathan tablet and Castiel. Wee! And all that will be in Season 7, Episode 21, Reading is Fundamental. And I mentioned it at the beginning of this episode that isn't it funny that sometimes it's my favorite episodes that I absolutely zip through on a speed run, and some of the ones I dislike the most that I absolutely tear to shreds and linger over, and I just don't know what more I can say about this one that hasn't already been diagrammed and discussed into the ground. I guess look through my tag for more on all that, but my tag for this one is also shockingly brief, because it's pretty concise, the messages that we take away from this one. Huh. Dean's queer. I mean, try and find another way to explain all of that. Anyway. You parallel a guy to a lesbian and make him competent in areas that she's not, eh, you know, make him flirt with the dude. And man, Dean looks at Charlie and sees someone who just is who she is unapologetically. She chose her life for herself and she just wants to live it how she wants to live it. She loves what she loves and she is unashamed and unapologetic about it. And Dean could let himself be that way too. He could just allow himself to love what he loves and not feel guilty about it or ashamed of it or lie about it or hide it. He could let himself just enjoy shit, you know? And he eventually does start to do that because of Charlie. And who knows how much more he would have gotten to do if they hadn't brutally murdered her in season 10. But, you know, it's a story for another day. (laughs) For now, and until next week, things are really moving toward the finish line like a freight train at full speed now. And there's no getting off. So, as we accelerate towards the end of season seven and the gamble era until next week you can find me on tumblr at mittens morgul or at spn george you can find me on discord as mittens morgul or blue sky as mittens morgul or you can email me at mittens at gmail.com and i look forward to talking to everybody again real soon and I swear, I started writing my Pinefest fic long before we got to season seven in this podcast. I guess somewhere deep in my brain, I knew the season of Dick was coming up, even back when I was still working my way through season five. I honestly think writing it is what got me through the whole of Gamble era, though, mostly because I was able to take all of that nonsense and then give everybody a happy ending afterwards. It's a completely human AU no monsters, but I realized halfway through writing it, it's basically season seven. So when it finally posts in April, hopefully everyone else will enjoy the same catharsis I felt finally getting through this bit of the show. Because again, when I first started my eternal rewatch, this is where canon ended. It's been so long, and I've watched it through so many times, that I finally feel like I've fully processed my feelings about it. Thank you, fanfic. Anyway, have a good one, everyone.